We can go ahead and be seated. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 13 this morning. We're going to be finishing up John chapter 13. We've been making our way the last nine months or so through the Gospel of John, and today we come to the end of chapter 13. We want to look at verses 31 through 38 together. And perhaps the the greatest test for the disciples came in Jesus' absence. The point we find ourselves, Jesus has has gathered his disciples into the upper room. They're having a Passover meal. They're having their last meal together. And if you've been here in previous weeks, we saw that that Jesus did one of the most sacrificial acts that that a person at that time could do, which was to, to kneel down and wash the feet of those who are subordinate to him. Something that could only foreshadow the the greatest act of sacrifice, which was the cross. And and during that time, uh, Jesus speaks to Judas, and and Judas, who will betray him, leaves and sets into motion the events that will lead to Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, and his crucifixion. And so the time is short. This time that Jesus has left with the remaining disciples is short. If there was ever a time for them to listen to Jesus, this would be the time. Jesus is about to go on a journey. It's a journey that he's going to go on alone. No one could accompany him. He's about to bear a burden that no one else could bear. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to leave. And, And if we put ourselves for a moment in the shoes of the disciples... They've left everything for him. They've left their family. They've left their careers for three years. They've been, they've been following Jesus. They've been ridiculed. They've been mocked. Friends have turned away from them. They've, they've been following Jesus every minute of every day. And, and they've been called to leave their belongings and their homes for a man who says, come and follow me. And now that same man is saying, I'm leaving and you can't come. You can't go where I'm going. So what are they going to do in Jesus' absence? I mean, three years of, of giving up everything to follow him, and, and they've seen him do things that no one else has ever done. They've heard him say things and teach things that no one else has ever spoken of, and he's been telling them this whole time about a kingdom that he's building. He's been talking about this kingdom that's, that's going to come to fruition, and, and, and now he's leaving. And he says, you can't come with me. Well, Jesus didn't leave them without first preparing them. He, he begins in John chapter 13, verse 31, extending all the way through the end of chapter 17, what we often call the farewell discourse. And, and so this serves, these verses serve as sort of an introduction to the farewell discourse where Jesus gives his last instructions to his disciples. We get to eavesdrop on that and hear what Jesus said to them in his final hours. In fact, this actually makes up the longest continuous section of Jesus' teaching in all of Scripture. And these eight verses introduce us to that. And so here's what he says in verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a while I am with you, 
you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. If the text of Scripture is calling us to something this morning, the text is calling us to make a radical commitment to Jesus. I mean, not only does Jesus give his disciples instructions uh, about his departure, some final instructions, but he also gives them a new commandment. A commandment, when followed, will communicate to the rest of the world that they belong to to Jesus. In this passage, there are, what I see is three marks of a committed disciple. Three distinguishing marks of of a person who has committed themselves in a radical way to following Jesus. And the first one we see is that there is this concern, there is this preoccupation with the glory of God. The committed Christian has this notable concern for the glory of God. I mean, after all, that is the very purpose for why we exist. To give glory to God. The person concerned with living in a way that gives God glory is a person who's not so much concerned about themselves, but a person who's more concerned with God. They're not preoccupied with their own glory. They're not worried about climbing the ladder. They're not worried about themselves and how other people view them. They're concerned about giving God glory in everything that they do. In a sense, what they want is for people to look at them and see the attributes of God reflected in such a way that it causes other people to look to God. To praise God. I mean, our passage begins in verse 31 by saying, when he had gone out. Now, the, the he in this passage is referring again to Judas, the, the disciple who betrayed Jesus. And, and Judas has left the upper room, and, and what he's done is he set into motion the events that will lead to Jesus' betrayal and arrest. And so then, after this, Jesus turns to the remaining 11, his believing disciples. And he sits down and he calls them little children. Now my guess is if Judas had still been there, he wouldn't have used that term. That's a term of, of endearment. It's, it's a term of gentleness. It's a term of expressing his, his, his affections for them. And he turns to them and he says, little children. And during this time, Jesus' thoughts are turned not towards anything else but the fullness of the glory of God. The fullness that awaited him in the presence of God. And, and when he's talking about glory, he's, he's referring to a singular event. He's referring to the cross. 
Because for Jesus, that was the most glorious event that had ever happened, the most glorious event in human history. And he said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Twenty-three times in the Gospel of John, we find this, this word glory used, and five of those occurrences are are right here in verses 31 and 32. Now think, of, now think of the glory of God. Think of it in two aspects. There's, there's one aspect that I think Romans 3.23 paints a picture for us. It, it says, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And, and so we could, we could take the words honor or or excellence, reputation, substitute those for glory, and we still sort of get the same essential meaning that, that, that there's this one aspect to God's glory, which means he, he deserves all the honor. He deserves all the praise. He deserves everything for this excellent reputation that he, that he has. And you and I so often fall short. All of humanity has fallen short of that excellency, that honor. But here's a, here's a second aspect of God's glory. It is the visible manifestation of His character. I mean, it's, it's God's character put on display. Now, you think of the Old Testament, and, and you think of the, the Israelites, and they're, they're wandering in the wilderness, and, and so often they were led by either a cloud or a bright light. Both of those marked by the glory of God. In Exodus 16, for example, the people of God are promised that the glory of God will appear to them. And sure enough, in chapter 16, verse 10, it tells us that in a cloud, the glory of God appeared, leading the people. That happened during the day and during the night. It was, it was a pillar of fire. Again, the glory of God made made visible, leading them. And what do you suppose is the right response when God's glory is made visible? What are people prompted to do? Well, they're, they're prompted to give Him glory. They're prompted to give Him honor. The, the only logical response is worship to a visible manifestation of God and His character. Now, while in the Old Testament, the glory of God was so often displayed in, in a cloud or bright light, something is fundamentally different when we get to the New Testament. How is the character of God and the glory of God displayed in the New Testament? It's displayed through Jesus. God's excellence is displayed in visible form in Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God. He is the manifestation of God's excellence, and the reason being because he simply is God. Hebrews tells us, the writer of Hebrews says that, that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. So the glory of God, his, his character, his attributes, everything about him revealed in the person of Jesus. So when we see Jesus, we see God. When we see Jesus, we, we see in Him the honor and the excellence that God deserves. And, and again, the only appropriate response for that is worship. And, and notice how, how Jesus says it. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. You notice He, he uses that in the past tense. I mean, in His mind, it's, it's done. I mean, it's a sure thing that, that He will go to the cross 
and he will die. The crucifixion is a settled matter for him. It doesn't take him by surprise. It wasn't something he wasn't aware of. His, in his death, our Lord experienced the deepest kind of shame, humiliation, accusation, insults, mockery, spitting. Everything that could be thrown at him was thrown at him during that time. Everything that could have been done to him was done. And, and he died there hanging between two thieves and experienced the agony of sin, our sin, and the separation from God. And so a part of us has to say, well, where's the glory in that? Where's the glory in the humiliation and the shame and the mockery and the agony and the pain? Where is the glory in all of that? If Jesus is really referring to the cross here. Listen to what D.A. Carson says. He says the supreme moment of divine disclosure, the greatest moment of displayed glory was in the shame of the cross. The greatest moment of his displayed glory was in the shame of the cross. There there is no other place where we see so clearly the worth of God, the the honor of God. We see it in the cross of Christ. Because in Jesus' death, what we we see is we see God's holiness and his holiness. His love, it's displayed right there. We see His righteousness and His justice displayed there. We see His mercy displayed. We see His grace displayed. We see His sovereignty, His humility, His wisdom, and His patience. All of that displayed in the crucifixion. The cross is the place where the redemption of sinners is is purchased. The wrath of God was literally satisfied in those moments. The the enslavement of sin was broken. The relationship between God and man was finally reconciled. The Son gave up His life as a pleasing sacrifice to God. And in all of heaven and earth, there is no act that is so worthy of glory and honor. Jesus was glorified in the cross because he defeated the power of sin. He he purchased our salvation. The the Father then was glorified in the cross because his nature was supremely put on display. And the work that he had given to the Son was, was finally accomplished. And now you look at the last statement that Christ made regarding his glorification. He says, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in him. Now, this statement right here looks, looks beyond the cross. It looks beyond the crucifixion. It looks to Jesus' exaltation to the right hand of the Father. The very fact, the very truth that, that Christ, who died on our behalf, was, was then raised and, and exalted, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, having completed the work he was sent to do. And, 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 and this, this aspect of Christ's glory, we see this in, in Paul's writing and In Philippians, he says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. John 17 says that it's this glory that Jesus longed to return to. The the Lord could say that the Father would glorify him at once, or some of your translations say immediately, because the resurrection and the ascension would, would follow soon after. Jesus didn't just die. He 
He rose, and he rose victoriously, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And so it's this glory, this glory of God put on display, this glory of God seen so supremely in the person of Jesus Christ that should be the concern of every Christian. It should fuel our worship of God. And and so we might ask the question, so what do I do when my worship grows cold? What do I do when... I'm preoccupied with other things. What I do when it seems like like I'm distant from God? The answer is to go to the cross. I mean, God will not seem distant if you find yourself gripped by what He did on the cross. If you find yourself overtaken by His grace supremely manifested in the crucifixion of His Son. If you meditate on Jesus' willingness to take your place, to stand where you stand, to take your sin and your shame and your guilt upon Himself and everything that He accomplished, if you think about that, if you meditate that, if you go to that daily, more likely than not, we'll find ourselves absorbed with the glory of God that's been displayed. And how can we not worship when we think rightly about Him? And so all the glory that was coming meant that Jesus then had to leave. I mean, none of this could have taken place, none of this could have happened without Him leaving. Again, verse 33, little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, how could Jesus say to them in chapter 13, you can't come, you can't go where I'm going, and then if you have ever read John, you get to chapter 14, and Jesus says, I prepare a place for you so you can come there. How do we reconcile these two things? I think the key to solving this conundrum is the statement where he says, just as I told the Jews. When you think about what he told the Jews, it takes us back to chapter 8, and he told the Jews that he was going away, and they would seek him, and they would not be able to find him. And and in their minds, they were wondering, well, well, is is Jesus making statements about taking his own life? Well, they were right in thinking this had to do with his death. But it wasn't that Jesus was thinking of taking his own life. So think of it this way. In chapter 13, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he's not saying, hey guys, listen, uh, here's the deal. I'm going to go to heaven, and, and, and sorry, you just you can't go there. Instead, he's saying, I'm going to the cross, and I'm going there by myself, because this is something that you can't do. This is something that you can't accomplish. This is something that only I can accomplish. Only I can take the burden. Only I can bear the penalty that satisfies the demands of justice and displays the glory of God. Only I can do that. So when he says, I'm going to a place and you cannot come there, the place he's talking about is the cross. If we're committed to him, if we love him, if we want to live our lives for him, we'll be, we'll be concerned and preoccupied and absorbed with the glory of God. But second, there, 
There's a sacrificial love for one another that will be displayed on our part. I mean, love is, is a frequent word in the Bible. Uh, the Bible uses the root word of love over 500 times, going from Genesis to Revelation. And interestingly, uh, the word love is used here only 12 times in the first 12 chapters of John. But then you get to the rest of John, chapters 13 through 21, and it's used 45 times. And so you sort of get this idea in the last like 24 hours of Jesus' life, he uses the word love repeatedly because the closer he gets to the cross, the more that's on his heart, the more that's on his mind is love. And he suggests that the key to impacting the world means that Christians, love each other, that they love one another. He says in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By, all, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, when Jesus was on earth, it was really easy for somebody to know whether or not a person was a disciple of his, because after all, the, the word disciple means a student, it means a learner, so you get the idea, the picture, even uh, when it came to other religious leaders and rabbis, a disciple was, was somebody who followed their master around, somebody who, who went everywhere that they went, a person who sat at their feet and listened to their teachings and submitted themselves to them and, and emulated them, and, and, and so people knew who Jesus' disciples were because they could see them following him in a very physical and real way sense. But Jesus is going to leave. Jesus will be absent. So then how are people going to know at that point whether or not they follow them? Well, he tells us there's a, there's a distinguishing mark that people will be able to tell, and it's going to be their sacrificial love for one another. I mean, he's leaving them, but he's leaving them Together, and because of their relationship with him, they have a relationship with one another. After all, he calls them children. They, they're brothers in Christ. They're, they're family. Whether you like it or not, there's a, there's a, there's a familiar bond that, that comes with being a Christian. So if you don't get along with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you, you better start working on it because you're kind of stuck with them Forever. And so this is the church. I mean, people who love one another. And, and, and again, he calls it a new command. Now, in a sense, this really isn't anything new. I mean, you go to Leviticus, for example, and, and you find the command to love your neighbor as yourselves. And so you have to ask the question, how then is this new? Well, what's new about it is there's this supreme example. There's this new source of love. He he. He doesn't say to love each other in the way that you see fit. He says to love one another just as I've loved you. He says, look at the way that I've loved you. This sacrificial, selfless love, that is the measure of love. And let that be your goal for love. Let that be the enabling force of your love for one another. And all of this is only possible because of the sacrifice of Christ. I mean, you realize that you can love in a way that Jesus loved. But it's not because you're just a really lovey-dovey person, you're just really good at that. It's because you've been given a new nature if you're a Christian. You're a new person, and you now have the ability to carry out what he's called you to do. And, 
And he says that people will know who you belong to if you love one another. And part of the reason why it's new is because it'll define a community that's just coming to existence. I mean, shortly after Jesus' death and departure and his resurrection, what you have is the establishment of the church. And he's saying, again, this is the distinctive measure. People will know that you're a follower of Christ because of how you love one another. He doesn't say, listen, they're going to know you because of, hey, you wear a cross around your neck or you go to a building with a steeple on it or you have like a you know, a, a Christian bumper sticker or, or whatever. He says, people are going to know that you're a believer, that you love me because you love one another. Some of you may or may not have heard of a man named Tertullian, and he, he, he lived, he ministered in the third century. He was one of the, the greatest of the early church fathers. Um, he was actually the first man to use the word trinity, and, and to describe the nature of God as Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit as he studied the Scriptures. And he lived and he wrote in a time when Christianity was under attack. It was under attack from all sort of sides and, and it was intensifying. And, and he was what we would call an apologist. He, he made arguments, rational, logical, biblical arguments for the faith and, and to defend the faith and to protect the faith against heretical teaching. But but he was quick to point out that, that the thing that won people to Jesus ultimately was not a particular philosophical argument, but he said it was love. It, it, was, it was the love that Christians had for one another. And, and he said, listen, it, it, it captivated and it baffled non-Christians. It just didn't make sense to them. And this was the thing that won them over. Listen to what he said in this statement. He says, It is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another, how they're ready to die for one another. I mean, can we say the same thing about our love today? I mean, I wish that we could, but I, I, I doubt sometimes that, that as Christians in general, not just us here at Crosspoint, but in general, that we don't have this kind of love that, that affects and reaches a non-believing world. It doesn't have to be that way. So how do we begin to love people, each other, in such a way that it draws, draws attention to Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked the question. i got a few suggestions here. We can begin by forgiving each other as Christ forgave us. We can love one another by serving in humility as Christ served his disciples in the same way that he got down and washed their feet. We can, we can love by generously giving to those who might need some sort of financial assistance. We can love by being patient and bearing one another when they make mistakes or they're immature in the faith. And we can love one another by deferring to one another in humility and, and always seeking their best interest above our own. We can, we can love others by speaking the truth in love and, and not by simply compromising because we, we don't want to offend anybody or we don't want to deal with conflict and so we just, we just don't even speak to them anymore. We, we can love by refusing to isolate ourselves and, and, and actually being intentional about living in community with other believers 
I mean, we can love by always being willing to suffer inconvenience and interruption in our schedules. And we can love by at all times striving for one another to, to preserve the unity of peace and by praying for one another. I mean, those are just, just some suggestions. And so there's this concern for the glory of God, and there's this love for one another, but the third thing that I see here as, as, as what marks a committed disciple of Jesus is this loyalty to the Son of God. I mean, a, a real and tangible loyalty. So after this, Peter speaks up again, and that's just, that's just Peter. Peter. Peter has a way of just saying whatever is on his, his mind, and Look what he says in verse 36. Lord, where are you going? Now, I want you to notice for a second that Jesus has just spoke some of the most profound words in all of the New Testament about loving one another, and Peter didn't hear any of it. Peter's like, hey, I want to go back to this whole, like, you're leaving idea, and, and so everything that Jesus just talked about in terms of love, he just, he just kind of skipped and glossed over, and, and he didn't hear anything else, and... I'm really glad none of us are like that ever. And so Jesus says to him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And so he he does acknowledge the fact that Peter will eventually go the route of suffering. I mean, church history tells us that Peter was crucified upside down. and, and, And regardless, Jesus makes it clear that Peter's time has not yet come. And, and Peter responds with really some boldness. He says in verse 37, well, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. In other words, Peter's saying, listen, hey, I'm your guy. Like, when everyone else kind of abandons you, I mean, these, these other ten guys, they're not as committed as I am. I'll die for you. I'll lay down my life. You can always count on me. Peter said these things. But if you know the rest of the story, Peter, Peter didn't do so well after that. Look at, look at Jesus' response in verse 38. He said, will you ta- lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, you can imagine the shock that that came to Peter when Jesus predicted the fact that he would deny him that very night. And, and in fact, the rest of the dialogue, Peter, which is very contrary to his character, didn't really say much. He got oddly quiet. And, and so the commitment of the disciples was in a very real sense tested during Jesus' final hours. And in Matthew 26, Peter repeated again his boast that later in the, evening, in the, in the garden that evening. And, and this time all the disciples joined with him and affirming that, hey, we're going to stay with Jesus even if it means that we will die. But, but it was just a short time later that, that when their lives seemed to actually be on the line, you know what they all did? They fled. And Jesus is betrayed and arrested, and they, they get out of there. And so Peter, Peter who, who promises to give his life for Jesus, tried to save his own life by denying Jesus. And it, and it makes you wonder, how did things get to that point for Peter? I mean, for the guy who's saying, listen, I'm, I'm your best disciple, I'm your most committed disciple, how did he get to the point where he denies Jesus three times in one evening? Well, just from this text and other texts, I think we can say a few things. Number one, Peter boasted quite a bit. 
I mean, Peter, Peter wasn't in a position really to boast about anything, but that just seems to be one of his weaknesses. He's always saying, listen, I'll never leave Jesus. I'll never succumb to temptation. I'll always be the one you can count on. And, and in all of that, he totally missed what Jesus was saying because he was just concerned about himself. Secondly, he, he prayed too little. I mean, Jesus is, is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember the agony. He's so close to his crucifixion. He's overwhelmed with agony because of what he will experience while taking the sins of the world upon himself. And you remember what Peter and the other disciples did? They, they took a little nap. And they're overcome with sorrow and they fall asleep. And Jesus says to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Indicating that to avoid the temptation, to, to, to avoid what's coming before them, that, that prayer was the way to strengthen themselves. And, and that, that must have hit Peter hard because many years later he wrote this, Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Some of your translations it says to, to watch but not only that, Peter acted fast. He's the type of guy who just, he doesn't think. He just, he just goes right to it. He, he doesn't stop and listen and think. And, and so there's a group of officers and priests and Pharisees. They come to the garden to get Jesus. And what does Peter do? Well, Peter whips out the sword. He cuts off the ear of, of one of the slaves of the high priests. And Jesus rebukes him. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, haven't you been listening to anything I've said? This is supposed to happen. I'm supposed to be betrayed. I'm supposed to go to the cross. And, and while it's hard to know Peter's motives, I can't help but thinking that he was just having a little trouble accepting the will of God. You know, Jesus clearly said he was destined to die. And I think we'd also say that, that part of Peter's problem was that he left Jesus' side and began to follow from a distance. Luke twenty two fifty four says, Then they seized him and they led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. This is Jesus they're speaking of. And, and Peter was following at a distance. I mean, the disciple who was right there, the disciple who was loyal, the disciple who said he would lay down his life is now slowly moving back. And Luke continues to tell us, after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter was sitting among them, and, and suddenly he was sitting in the seat of the scornful. And you have this servant girl who, who recognizes him as a follower of Jesus. She points him out, and, and Peter, who brags so much about his loyalty to Jesus, he now begins to say, I don't, I don't know this guy. I don't know who he is. I have nothing to do with him. And and so there he was within the sight of Jesus, denying him, even cursing and swearing that he had never known him, according to Matthew 26. And, and then the, the rooster crowed. Jesus turned around and he looks at Peter. And, and Peter at that moment probably remembered what Jesus has said here in the upper room. And so ashamed, so overwhelmed with guilt, he runs and he cries his heart out. Peter, Peter dropped the ball, didn't he? I mean, in a major way, he dropped the ball. He, he failed, and, and yet that wasn't the end of Peter's story. 
It doesn't have to be the end of our story. I mean, perhaps you've let Jesus down. I mean, perhaps the mark of commitment, you're stepping back, you're, you're doing some introspection, you're saying, it's just, it's not there for me. So where does that leave you? Well, if we step back for a second, I think that it is no coincidence that, that Peter and Judas are, are held up as two portraits for us in this one chapter. I realize many of you who weren't here last week when we talked about the sad ending of Judas who, who had never truly given his life to Christ and that's why he betrayed him. And there's a, there's a sense in which you might look at, at the, lacks, the lack of marks of Christianity commitment in your own life and wonder before it's too late if you're actually born again. And, and, and hopefully we get that from the story of Judas. But what about Peter? I mean, what separates Peter from Judas? Judas, who, who ended his life separated from God forever, and then Peter, who we know to be a powerful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ later on. What's the difference? I think in a, really, in a, in a real sense, John is giving us these two portraits and saying, you're either a Judas or you're a Peter. Judas never experienced the kind of sorrow that comes before repentance. Yeah, he had remorse. He didn't like the consequences. His sin left him empty and miserable. And even though when we let Jesus down, God's intention is not to leave us there, but to see us restored through repentance and mercy. You see, it wasn't too late for Peter, and it's not too late for you. I mean, Peter gives us all hope. I mean, if Peter can let Jesus down in that way, that gives all of us great hope as we think about our own failures. By the time we get to the book of Acts, we see a different Peter. We see a Peter who preached, a Peter who suffered, a Peter who died just as he had promised. He proved himself to be a genuine disciple. Because here's a man who, even though he denied Jesus, he was broken over it. He was repentant about it. He was overwhelmed with genuine sorrow because of what he did to his Savior. And perhaps this is the most significant thing that you and I can learn from Peter, that God can turn a life around when it's finally yielded to him. I mean, what kind of a Christian are we? I mean, is, is everything that we promised Jesus when we first believed coming to be true. I mean, listen, if you lack the marks of a committed Christian, the reality is that God can transform you into the kind of disciple that we see here if you would only surrender and simply let Him have your will. The life of a committed Christian may be costly, but it's the only thing that counts for eternity. Lord, we recognize that so clearly in our passage today. And Father, some of us may feel as if we've let you down. And maybe that's a good place for us to be. Because then we can look and see forgiveness the grace, the second chances that you offer to us. And I pray that, Lord, 
Our story might be like Peter's then. Who, although he fell, by the Lord's grace, he was brought back up again. And that in doing so, Lord, he, he served you with faithfulness, with loyalty. And I pray that someday when we're found, we're found with that. And so help us to do this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.